it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And it if sure you are, is. <laughs> is, isn't it? I know. And and if you're looking for something, the perfect gift for a friend or for yourself, I recommend. Maybe you can recommend it because it sounds really self-serving and narcissistic when I recommend it. Um, the wonderful oral history of Star Trek, uh, the well, 50-year mission. Would that be the 50-year mission? Uh, volume one be. and two? Volume one. Now, I want to make an important distinction. Volume one, available now in paperback. Volume two, only in hardcover still. Right. So, But you can get the audio version, get the digital version. You can get them all. Because maybe them you all. want them get all. Get all of them. You know, because that would be ideal. I, I would prefer <laughs> you get them all. Because I had my, my druthers, as they say. And then, of course, also... Our other books, which are worth checking out, Nobody Does It Better, also available in hardcover and now in paperback. That's about uh, James Bond, isn't it? How'd you guess? I just about James Bond. Because nobody does it better, that's why. It's a great book about James Bond. So as you get ready for the inevitable release of uh, No Time to Die sometime in the next decade. There's no time um, to release. (laughs) You want to pick up No Time to Die, again, also available on digital, audio, and in hardcover and paperback from, uh, from Tor Forge. And uh, if you want to do a deeper dive, check out uh, So So Say We All, our oral history of both Battlestar Galactica series, which is only available in hardcover. And I don't believe there's an audio book. I just think a digital. I'm not sure why they didn't do an audio book. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can I'll, do something about that. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll just record <laughs> our own and we'll, we'll show them. So uh, anyway, uh, if you're thinking about the holidays and wondering what to get, please uh, check out uh, my books uh, with Ed Gross. The 50-Year Mission, Volume 1 and 2, So Say We All, An Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and most recently, Nobody Does It Better, A Complete Oral History of the James Bond Films and Spy Mania. Ed Gross will thank you. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff too. You go to the app store. It says electric now. You download it. And then it. in press, the United States. Press the button and there it is. There it is. And you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy. And episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. Burn, thank you so much for joining us back here again for Disco Nights. I am so excited about my co-host and our special guests to discuss this week's episode, Unification 3, otherwise titled, What Caused the Burn? Spock is back. Chili gets a promotion, and whose side are you on, Mom? I love this episode for reasons we will discuss, but first I would love to introduce you again to my beloved co-host, Ryan Britt. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Chase. How's it going? I'm great. Good to see well, you. It's good to see you and hear from you again. Um, I'm going to uh, introduce our other uh, panel of Disco Nights guests. Uh, there are semi-permanent uh, stable of uh, super emotional, logical uh, friends. Uh, Sarah Lynn Michener is a maker of Spitfire, a Gen X trend supporting Ravenclaw. She is also a Trekkie. Um, she is a fantastic person. You can find her on Twitter. Um, and then, of course, we have the wonderful Heather Baker Barons, uh, founder of Fans Give Back, a nonprofit passion project dedicated to helping fans in need. You know her as Bat with Babe through social media. And she is also a long sword fencer and avid Star Trek fan. And I just want to say that I love what Heather does on Twitter, and you should follow her and support um, all of her wonderful kindness, but it is true. We are here to discuss Unification 3. Chase says that it is called What Caused the Burn. Um, My other title for it was Spock's Home Movies. Um, (laughs) Mysterious home movies that um, have, I have a theory about where the home movie came from. I don't know if you guys want to jump into it. Uh, Spoilers, if you have not seen Unification 3, uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 3, 
Um, many spoilers. Many spoilers for that, including that, uh, I believe it's the first episode of Star Trek in which uh, three different actors play Spock and the, and the character is not alive in the present. There are other multiple Spock episodes with multiple actors, but this is the first time that three separate actors, Ethan Peck, um, Liam Hughes, who plays baby Spock in the flashback, and then of course, baby Spock. baby Spock is wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, um, uh, Leonard Nimoy in archive footage from Unification 2. Star Trek The Next Generation in 1991. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Spock. What are our thoughts, Disco Nights uh, panel? It's, it's always good to see Spock, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... I don't have words for this episode. <laughs> That's terrible. It was, I'm, I, it's taken so long to process it because it felt like such a monumental episode and a real gift to fans, in my opinion. Um, I think that's something we can talk about later on, but I, I just want to hear what you guys want to think because I, I know it's going to be a fun discussion. Well, Heather, I'll say that it, it is a gift to fans. And I think that some of that is because of the writing of Kirsten Beyer. Uh, for mm -hmm. those listeners who may not know, this episode was written by Kirsten Beyer, a longtime co-producer of Star Trek Discovery and author of Star Trek Voyager novels. She's also a co-creator of Star Trek Picard. Um, and yeah, I did an email interview with her for Inverse before the episode aired, and I said exactly what you said, Heather. I said that this episode was a gift, and I cried, and I felt like it was a confluence of... Um, so many aspects of the, of the fandom and, and the franchise that it felt like a gift. Um, it, it, but it didn't feel like a cheating gift. It felt like it earned some of its fan service. And I think that's, that's my, big, my big take. Star Trek really knows how to turn our expectations on their ears really knows how to capture our hearts in the process, is wonderful at providing these throwbacks which capture our hearts and also which tie in beautifully to the storylines. They never, to me, they, they never feel like a stretch. Um, th there's sometimes some humor in how they do, you know, in how they carry this through to fruition, but I, I thought it was a beautiful way to, um, to have the throwback footage and to encompass the the ideals that Burnham, our hero, is uh, is upholding in this episode, and I, I loved the part where uh, I, I guess it was Burnham's mother who said it it, it it much of Spock can be attributed to what his sister did. Now that to some may seem like a stretch, but Burnham is really going out on a limb and doing a lot of things uh, more and more. It seems as as the show progresses to show herself as an incredibly empowered woman. And it's exciting to see. Sarah, what were your very logical thoughts about <laughs> Unification 3? My very illogical thoughts were just, you know, of course the emotional, like, you know, I totally started crying. Like they could have brought Spot, Spock back and, you know, shown archival footage and had him talking about, you know, what he had for lunch and I probably would have started crying. <laughs> So, you know, and it, like she said, like, it, it's funny that they do this sort of thing, knowing that they're messing with us a little bit and they're manipulating us a little bit, for, but only for good. And, and they really don't, uh, they don't take it too far and they don't, they don't throw it in just to throw it in. It, it, it ends up, you know, tying really beautifully to the story. So I was very happy, um, you know, cause the, the unification part two is you know or was one of my favorite episodes in part for that very last moment that picard uh asks spock if he wants to share you know what sarek shared with him and and the the facial expression that that nimoy makes at that moment is so perfect and always makes me cry and it's just so beautiful and so i love you know i love the fact that all of this is all tied together and that you know when they brought out you know a spock sibling i wasn't actually expecting that she would end up having so much, so many connections on screen to Spock or that, that, share, that that would be shared with us. I thought, well, now that they've, you know, just sort of brought a Spock's sister character, then it'll end there and that'll be it. And, and maybe they'll reference it from time to time. But I wasn't expecting them to do as much with it as they did. So I was very pleased. Yeah, it was I mean, interesting how they kind of tied shows together too. 
Um, I really enjoyed that aspect of the world building that's come in with Star Trek Picard with the Quatma lot and everything. Mm. Um, but but making that little point that that brings all these different um, moments in Star Trek together in a really special way just is it's very powerful and emotional. Yeah, so is I will that... note with the, oh, go ahead, Chase. No, please, Ryan, I, I want to hear. No, I was going to say with the Kuwatma a lot. So I had asked um, Kirsten Beyer, who wrote the episode, this might be interesting to our listeners of what came first, her desire to bring the Kuwatma a lot onto Star Trek Discovery or their creation on Star Trek Picard. Um, and she said that it was back to back kind of because they had filmed the Kuwatma a lot episode of Picard right after right before rather she went back into the discovery writer's room for um season three so the quatma lot was created by michael shabone for the star trek picard episode absolute candor um and then kirsten byer of course co-created star trek picard with michael shabone um so but yeah kirsten byer said that yeah, that the that she won't realize that it was an easy way to have created um a bridge between the vulcans and the romulans that there would be some truth-telling uh honest women <laughs> were, were her words what she told me and I thought that was a really a really smart way of looking at it but yeah Heather I think that the world building is maybe not since the DS9 you know TNG Voyager connections mm -hmm. I, I don't think Star Trek has and and the Star Trek 6 connections um with unification parts one and two because um uh, people may not remember this, but in 1991, part of the reason that Leonard Nimoy did Unification 1 and 2 was because it was a free promo for Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, um, which came out later that year in 1991. And Nimoy references events uh, in Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country that um, had not occurred yet for viewers um, viewing Unification uh, 1 and 2 in 91. But yeah, I think that the the confluence of it with the recent canon and old canon was amazing. And I think that you're right that the, the, the Kuatmulat aspect of it was cool. I just really wanted Burnham's mom to say choose to live at some point to somebody. <laughs> I wanted her to like throw down, um, just as like the parent in me wanted her to like turn on one of those people. It was really beautiful to see instead, you know, we had so much between Spock and Sarek and their struggles and to see Michael and her mother coming together um, in an uncomfortable way, like her mom, Gabrielle, mm. right, definitely pushed Michael, but it was nice to see kind of their relationship really winning in this episode and coming through for each other. And that's something that they really haven't had um, and, and was really powerful to me. Which I, I just love know. that all of the Burnhams end up on Vulcan. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> that is a little convenient. But the fact that Burnham's mother left her when she was at her lowest and when it was at the most critical point was really, uh, again, something that turned us on our ears. She's waited mm -hmm. so long to see her mother, and obviously it's a critical point, as the president of Navarre said, they are being, she is being forced, Burnham is being forced to speak with absolute candor, and that they will be subject, the, the uh, they will ruthlessly assail the credibility of the challenger with grave consequences of shame. And for Burnham, of course, this is not just consequences of shame for herself, but for even for Spock's memory. So mm -hmm. the fact that this is all coming together at a time that is so crucial for Burnham, I think really showed her courage. And I think the writers also, with that, all of those confluences, they have positioned this episode at a critical point in true Star Trek fashion, a critical point in our own history and our own socialization here in 2020. You know, um, unification is extremely important now. And I loved this line when the president of Navarre said, it's an ancient story, isn't it? My people's fates are so intertwined. They are so similar in such profound ways that they do not trust each other. And it's really interesting how Obviously, so much has gone on on both sides of the aisle politically, and we have even imploded against ourselves on each side of the aisle. You know, we eat our own, much less, our, much less each other. And we cease to see each other as human. And there's a lot that could be said about that. A lot that people say um, on both sides, but 
the fact is that we need to unify and listen to each other more than ever. And that for me is what this episode is about. Um, you know, this, uh, on Navarre, they're, they're not listening to science. They are, um, they, they, they have no desire to really put their own beliefs and understandings aside and listen to facts. In fact, I think there was a, even a mention of alternative facts. And that is just so horribly reminiscent of what's going on in our country today. Um, I really, really lit up at those mentions. Yeah, I think that it's, um, it's great too, because it's all, all in a courtroom setting kind of, you know, like a, like a sort of, like, instead of the amok time, you know, fight to the death, it was like debate club. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I thought it was a very Vulcan, Vulcan way of, con of combining those things of like a duel to the death, but with our, but with our minds and our, our, our science debate. I thought that was kind of amazing. I do want to point out for those of you who are watching on the Electric Now video app that you see a necklace being worn by Sarah Lynn Michener. And that is, um, you know, we're talking about Spock and <laughs> Sarah, what's the story behind your necklace? Just um, for those who, who can see it and those who can't, it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, my, my partner wrote uh, Lightburn software and he wrote it in part because the software that came with our laser cutter was really terrible. Uh, we used to live in Silicon Valley. He worked at Apple as an engineer. Um, and so he actually left Apple in order to start this. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I laser cut things sometimes for fun and I, it's fun cause I, or additionally fun cause it's neat to use my boyfriend's software. And if I don't like a feature, I tell him. And can we get How this? Cool can we that? get this? Can we get, can we get a version of a Spock necklace somewhere, Sarah? You can get it, uh, for, from sarahjasonmakers.com. Can you get the Uhura one there too? Yes, you can. Okay, I have the Uhura one. I, I got it for being a friend. That's yeah, yeah. She did me a wonderful favor. So I'm talking about uh, Sarah's Spock necklace, not just to shamelessly plug her beautiful Spock <laughs> necklace, but also because I want to talk about fandom a little bit. Um, again, for those of you watching on the video version of the podcast, you'll be able to see me holding up the very first Star Trek fanzine. Um, Spockanalia, which was published in 1968. Um, and it is the origin of the new name of the Vulcan planet. That is where it comes from. Navarre it comes from a fan writer named Dorothy Jones. Um, and a Navarre is a type of art form that means two forms. Um, and as Do when Dorothy Jones wrote of Navarre, she has a it's, a, it's a song with two voices that's accompanied by a Vulcan harp. At one point she calls it a little Vulcan harp, which I think is kind of amazing. Um, but yeah, the idea of Navarre comes from fandom. It does not come from strict Star Trek canon, it comes from fandom. Um, Navarre was so popular in Star Trek fandom by the time they started printing Star Trek short stories in the 70s, like this book Star Trek The New Voyages, the very first short story was called Navarre, and it was by a woman named Claire Gabriel. Um, and to Chase's wonderful point about unification, all of these stories in this uh, book, Star Trek The New Voyages, which was published by Bantam in 1976, it's a wonderful short story collection. It's probably the first short story collection I owned as a child. I was not born when this came out, but I bought it used. Um, it has an introduction from Leonard Nimoy, and he talks about the idea that he was always startled and warmed by the fact that I could walk anywhere wearing the face of an alien from a far place and be greeted only with love. And he says, we could still use more love from different races closer to home, but we have made a start. I thought this was amazing. This is something Nimoy wrote in 1976 for mm. an introduction to a short story called Navarre. And then from beyond using archive footage, Spock says something very similar in this episode. And I thought that that was kind of amazing. But yeah, Navarre comes from fandom. And I thought that the idea of the, that they, that Kirsten Beyer chose that word um, and was aware of that word, it popped up in Enterprise in a random episode. It was really amazing because it, it showed to me on some level that Discovery has become kind of like Star Trek fanfic officially. And that's not a bad thing. And, you know, Michael Shabon has called on record saying that, you know, all fiction is fan fiction and that's what Star Trek Picard was. And I think that, that it is a celebration of fanfic in the best way. And so that was kind of my big, big thought from it. When, when they said Navarre, I immediately like punched the air. I was so 
excited and you know my wife was like what are you talking about i was like oh well, let's get down the fanzines let's bust out the fanzines um but yeah that was kind of that was that was my, my it's so fascinating and wonderful that fan input can create star trek lore and then canon and you know i i'm wondering because we raced through my bad uh we raced through the intros today i was going to ask you how much of this issue is in your book set phasers on stun uh Ryan. oh yeah well uh, which is I'm yeah, go ahead. Well, which is out later uh, in uh, two 2021? Years. Two, two years, okay, two years. Yeah, well, I'm deep but, in the, uh, yeah, it's in there because I think that the, you know, I mean, <laughs> Spock and Helia, or, um, it came out in 1968, like Star Trek was still on, <laughs> you know? Like we, we tend to think of the fan emergence after the 60s, we tend to think of that, but it was going on. Oh, I yeah. mean, this was published by, you know, Deborah Langsam, who lived at 250 Crown Street in Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, I, I lived in that part of Brooklyn, you know, decades later. Like, this was a, something that happened um, very grassroots. Um, I don't know. It, it's a part of it insofar as I have three chapters devoted to the 60s. And that I think that the, the fact that there were people essentially alone creating fanzines with the hope that other people would read them. And, you know... This fanzine is not, I mean, it's relatively tame compared to some of the other fanzines that are out there. I brought, you know, uh, you guys know this, I brought Spock and Slave with me. Um, <laughs> yes. Which is a, uh, another fanzine. I mean, you just flip one page and the word erotic just jumps out. Um, of course. You don't, even, you don't even have to make it up. But, you know, I mean, like, I think that, like, the thing is about this, this Spock and Slave is funny because there's actually a panel from Spock and Slave in Leonard Nimoy's um, second memoir, I Am Spock. You know, so, like, the, he was aware of this stuff. This is how important it is. Um, we wouldn't have any of the fan fiction we know of unless people were doing, you know, sexy Spock times. So I think that you don't, the world as we know it, Chase, would not exist with fanfic if it were not for Star Trek. Absolutely. And that, and I think, is my answer to your question, yeah. It's um, so interesting that things that would have been considered fanfic, such as just even the very existence of Adira, you know, Adira would not have been canon years ago, even on Deep Space Nine, unfortunately. And Ira Bear copped to that during, um, during the documentary on Deep Space Nine. So it's really interesting how fans have really been forerunners of the true meaning of the word inclusion and the true meaning of the word diverse. And, you know, I loved when Burnham that said, who said Spock believed that together you could create something bigger than yourselves. That's what this quorum is. That's what Navarre is. That's what the Federation is. And it, it is that kind of inclusion and listening and openness and, and cherishing of each other's individuality. I think that, that Roddenberry had and that fans have had even longer than the show has. It's nice to see that the show is catching up. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of what led to fan fiction was was not seeing ourselves in the show, not seeing the the stories that we wanted to explore, and of course, no porn at the time. So uh, that's that's just not going to make it. But when we have a history of trying to you know telling diverse stories but not always making sure that everyone is included. That's something that I really appreciate about Discovery and the other shows that are being made right now. And that helps facilitate having these conversations within fandom so that we can try to, to bring that unity to the, the people that, that live Star Trek and make Star Trek and want to put Star Trek out in the world. Um, the, the timing for this and the reality that you know, these are conversations that we need to have now is just yeah. really powerful. I keep saying it is really powerful. Obviously, I was, I feel very, very moved by this episode. Sorry, I keep being all like, oh. Well, I think that you're Don't right. Don't be though. sorry, that's yeah, beautiful. No. But I, I, think that, I think that you're, you're right, and Heather, and I think that something Chase said is interesting too, is that, you know, in 91, you know, I agree with Sarah, Unification 1 and 2 are some of my favorite episodes as a kid because of the nostalgia factor. When you watch those episodes now, you know, and you watch Unification 3, like all respect to the TNG staff who did some amazing writers, um, you know, the, the scripts of Unification 1 and 2 are not as good as the script of Unification 3. And part of it is because of what you're saying, Heather, because, you know, we, some of the, our, our 
politics have gotten more progressive and that Star Trek's more inclusive. But part of it is just that the writing of Unification 3 is just a tighter script. It's just a better written script than Unifications 1 and 2. I mean, <laughs> I was making a joke about this online, but Spock's speech in Unification 3 that we see Michael Burnham watch with Book is taken from two scenes, actually. It's the final scene um, where Spock says, you know, they will, the, the unification of more common people will, will be reached. But the previous line where he says, closed minds have kept these two people apart, comes from an earlier scene where he's having tea with Picard at a Romulan tea kitchen and Picard's in his Romulan ears. And it's not like the greatest, most powerful scene in the episode, but they pulled that one line out. To me, the curation of all of that like the greatest hits, if you will, of unification actually made unification more relevant and better by being curated and to put into this other environment. And I think that that's also like a good defense of like the Burnham haters out there, right? Because Burnham, people are like, oh, Burnham's, you know, a fake sister of Spock, you know, retcon or whatever. It's like, well, you know, if that were true, then... Burnham would have succeeded in everything that she's done on Star Trek Discovery. And the reality is, is that she hasn't, in the same way Spock didn't succeed in everything that he did. I remember when Ethan Peck first got the role, I talked to him about his first episode of Spock where he's like losing his mind and crying, you know, and reciting Alice in Wonderland in the, in the Kotrick arc on Vulcan. And I'm like, why do we love it when, when Spock is, you know, freaking out and crying and losing his shit? And Ethan Peck was like, because that's Spock. That is what we like about it because we know that when that part comes out, that it's real. And I think that they've done that with Burnham in the same way. And that I think that what I love about Burnham is that I can relate to Spock as a kid because you want to like have that duality, right? You're like, I want to like not get my feelings hurt, but I want to be a badass. Burnham's more of an adult, right? Like she's like, oh, I've got my feelings and I've got my logic. And I just think that she's more of a Spock for our time. And I think that that's, the, that's why I thought the using of that speech was perfect, because it was just enough. Because um, if they'd done more of it, it would have been kind of like, all right, you know, this episode was kind of slow. <laughs> you know, and like, Picard was only with Spock, not in a Romulan guise for like one scene. <laughs> it's like less than five minutes, you know. So I think that they did a, a the curation there elevated the material, you know. Um, and it was a good episode, you know, uh, but I think that it's made better now through the yeah. discovery lens. Yeah, yeah, and it's it interesting is. that when they have the, um, you know, with what you just said about Burnham being sort of today's Spock, like they, it's, it's fascinating how much of this is generational. Like when Spock was written, you know, it made perfect sense to make him sort of this character that was half human and half Vulcan and that he uh, was sort of decided to suppress his human side for most of the stories. Um, you know, he sort of grappled with it and, and we liked the way it grappled, he grappled with it because it made good stories. But with Burnham, in, you know, we sort of are in an era where people are more aware of things like embracing emotions and that it's, it's okay to cry. It's okay to, to have real trauma responses to bad things happening. And I'm so, it's one of the things that I love about new Star Trek that they get right. Um, you know, that so many of the characters on, on TNG, especially, I think would, you know, go through something horrible. And then the next week they'd be back to their default setting, you know, like flipped a switch and you could always say, well, back, you know, in, in the future they have, you know, you can just go see Dr. Beverly and she'll give you a pill so that you don't develop PTSD from what you went through. But I don't right. think that's as interesting as the story told of, of actually having the characters go through it. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, Spock's whole deal was I'm going to repress this side of me and Burnham's whole deal is I'm going to embrace this side of me. It is so true. We work with a, an incredible psychologist in the coalition uh, named Dr. Janina Scarlett, whose main credo is the only way out is through. And I think, you know, society has undergone this very um, kind of cynical transformation in the last several years where it's like, I've got something in my eye, you know, no, I'm fucking crying all over the place <laughs> and I'm not afraid to admit it because this just wiped me out because it strikes so close to home. And, and I, you know, I think, I think it's a beautiful and brave thing when people are able to fully embrace who they are and their pasts. 
um, our past. It's the most difficult thing. It's our own hero's journey. But uh, in in Burnham embracing obviously both sides of human or humanity, even in the most difficult of circumstances, when her own mother is there saying she's a human, she's gone over to that side, you know, and she's basically degrading her daughter in front of everyone at her most important moment because of her human tendencies. Ouch, right? Ouch. I think it speaks to how how we need to be able to receive criticism in order to grow. Um, that's something that we, we kind of straddle these lines in Star Trek and in fandom of what we want things to, to be and what we envision and then having to do the work to get there. And that work is really hard and uncomfortable. And we need to be able to experience those conversations authentically. I like to say our authenticity is our superpower, but that also means that we need to be receptive when other people call us out on something that we say or do that's harmful. Um, it's, I like this call to, to, recognize the the power of emotion and love and compassion right that is the heart of star trek and it's not we're never saying no we don't we don't want to address issues among us um we don't want this polarization we want to have the conversations but we need to learn how to be there and work together and this is with uh, Michael and her mother, like this, that's a wild relationship. I can't imagine the emotions that both of them experience just, yeah. just in that. So to be yeah. able to be open to that emotion, to receive it, to learn, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it. Um, it's just a powerful thing. And it's especially power, powerful for, for me as a woman. Um, and knowing the, the, the power of mothers and just the relationship that we have together that just made this episode even more special. Well, I think though that like you're you're right, Heather, and like the the thing that for me is as a parent, what I really like about Discovery and Picard is that, and I think that Deep Space Nine really started this, is the sense of actual families. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like actual couples that lasted, you know, and um, relationships that lasted and fathers and mothers that stuck around, you know, and I think that that's just something that Discovery does really well and um, nails it. There's been a lot of, you know, family stuff from the beginning, because as you said, Mm -hmm. Sarah, you know, they brought in the Spock sibling. How could they get away from that? But um, I have to say that (laughs) they have tackled it realistically. And I think that what was interesting is something that Bayer told me about writing of the episode with why to do the flashback. Why are we going to do the flashback? Well, we had to address the question of whether or not Burnham looked up what had happened to her family in her year, you know, alone um, with book, right? Had she gone, had she tried to find out through, you know, I don't know, Google galactic history, you know, <laughs> what happened to Spock, you know, and that uh, buyer's response is sort of, no, she didn't. And this was the first moment that she did because that, because it would have been too painful for her. Um, to do it until that point that it became necessary. And that that's a cool plot device, but it's also like just a, it, it, it made the flashback worth it. Um, I would have yeah. loved them. I would have loved a mind meld, but a mind meld probably would have been a little, little corny. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was a, it was a, it was an efficient way of doing it. Uh, speaking of mind melds and psychology, uh, different kind of uh, different kind of science things. Uh, Chase, do you want to uh, intro the Disco Science Minute for a second? Absolutely. Disco Science Minute is one of my favorite parts of the show, and here to introduce it is our resident scientist. She is a non-practicing astrophysicist and PhD student. She is the Pandora series on CW Science Advisor. I hope you're watching Pandora because it's a fantastic show. And uh, she is the Disco Nights podcast correspondent. She's also a SciShow writer. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. And everyone, give it up for J.D. Voigt. Hello, listeners. It's J.D. Voigt back with your moment of disco science. The mystery of the burn continues with Discovery's computer spitting out the time differences between three black boxes of two ships a thousand light years apart, and a third further out from at least one of them. The numbers given to us are one and seven millionths of a microsecond. For the record, one millionth of a microsecond can also be referred to as one trillionth of a second, 
or if you want to use your SI prefixes, a picosecond. Obviously, information in the Star Trek universe is capable of traversing the universe faster than the speed of light. Otherwise, it would take years, if not millennia, to send a message between ships. But restricting ourselves to the fundamental speed limit offered up in Einstein's theory of relativity, the fastest signal possible would traverse a whole millimeter of space in a few picoseconds. In other words, it's a very tiny portion of time. But it's not the smallest we can possibly measure. In 1999, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded for research that required technology capable of measuring time on the scale of femtoseconds, which is a thousand times faster than a picosecond. And that's the speed at which some chemical reactions take place. But in October this year, scientists reported that they had successfully measured how long it takes a photon of light to travel from one side of a hydrogen molecule to the other. That time is 247 zeptoseconds, or roughly 10 million times shorter than a picosecond. But is there some ultimate smallest span of time we can measure? Is time continuous or actually made out of teeny tiny discrete bits? The answer is maybe. It's known as Planck time and is so, so tiny that you would write it out by putting down a decimal point, then 43 zeros, then five, four-ish. According to current theories, the Planck time is basically the briefest span of time that carries any meaning. When the universe was about a Planck time old, the force of gravity distinguished itself from what would later become the other three fundamental forces that bind the universe together. Whether we'll ever be capable of measuring something as small as a Planck time is still well up in the air, but this year scientists proposed a hypothetical way to build what is basically a very sophisticated stopwatch which can discern lengths of time a mere billion Planck times long. Given that the Federation in the year 3189 can only barely identify a time difference of a picosecond, which is a billion trillion times longer than that stopwatch is supposed to be able to measure down to, I'm guessing the Planck timescale will be eluding us for just a little while. But Discovery has taken its results to Navarre, formerly known as Vulcan. According to the dialogue, they arrive specifically at what they call Lagrange 1. Whenever you look at two massive bodies orbiting one another, like a planet and a star, or a planet and a moon, or a planet and another planet that you had to invent because you established in your third pilot that Vulcan has no moon, but later on in the franchise effect shots depicted a very close body in the sky, you'll find five locations where the gravitational effects of both bodies appear to cancel each other out. If you put a small object, like a satellite or a starship, at one of those points, it'll basically stay in the exact same spot relative to the two orbiting bodies. Lagrange points, abbreviated L1 through L5, are basically cosmic parking spots, though they aren't fixed in space. They travel around as the planet or moon does. Ultimately, we don't know which L1 Discovery had parked itself in, because L1 is located between the two orbiting bodies being considered, and the ship is neither between Vulcan and its star, 40 Eridani A, nor between Vulcan and its barely canonical companion. That visual boo-boo aside, humans have put several satellites at the Sun-Earth system's L2, for example, uh, which you can find by drawing a line from the Sun to the Earth and keep going for another 1.5 million kilometers. This is the future home of the James Webb Space Telescope, which might actually manage to launch sometime this decade. But the location of L2 might seem counterintuitive, since it's beyond both the Sun and the Earth, shouldn't a satellite be pulled toward them? But it turns out that if that satellite is traveling at the right speed in its own orbit around the Sun-Earth system center of mass, just like the Sun and the Earth are, the centrifugal effect that it experiences will balance out that gravitational tug. Lagrange points are named after 18th century Italian-turned-French mathematician and astronomer Joseph-Louis Lagrange, though the first three points were actually discovered by Leonard Euler a few years prior. Lagrange has a crater on the moon named after him, as well as an Antarctic island, and a great many mathematical concepts, including a type of subspace, most likely unrelated to the subspace the future uses to send communications FTL. And as someone currently working on collecting data for her PhD dissertation, I'll end with a moment of appreciation for Burnham being called out for her tiny sample size. This has been J.D. Voigt with your Moment of Disco Science. Until next time. Thank you so much, JD. So in this meld of science and emotion, there is something that's extremely important because in this country, in this society, in this world right now, we have different groups of people, those who pay attention to science and those who don't feel the need 
don't feel any interest, and in fact refuse to listen to science. And I thought it was really interesting when, uh, when Gabrielle said she was warning Burnham, they all have their own versions of the truth, fact, and logic. You're walking in there with a lot of blind spots. And I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but I, I really want to revisit this in terms of where this episode of Star Trek speaks to us, how discovery really is leading us on a path to to change our own world as you, uh, you know, Ryan, as your book is about how Star Trek impacts the, the real world. And I think that's Roddenberry's first and foremost and forever mission is to impact the real world. I think, I think the problem happens in society when we walk in with a lot of blind spots, whoever we are. And I think it's important, although we will absolutely I will vehemently disagree with people on where they stand socially and politically. I think the only way to, for us to change minds and hearts is to really have open, open conversations with people and find out what is causing, what is causing their, their social standpoints. What, what is, what is leading people to the standpoints that they, that they have? Um, absolute candor is something that's mentioned in this episode. And I think that's really important. In my mind, usually what keeps people from being inclusive, which was Roddenberry's main mission, is fear. And I think once we open conversations up with absolute candor about the fear that people experience when they are first getting to understand people of different everything, different beliefs, different orientations, different faiths, different everything, um, which is the way the world joyously works, then I, I, think, I think once we get down to realizing that there is a science to listening and to empathy, I think that we'll all be a lot better off because a lot of people's minds and hearts can open up. I've seen it many, many times and, and have that world, that Roddenberry world where we can be inclusive and all live long and prosper. But I think part of it really depends on, on ceasing to make each other the enemy when we have different viewpoints and really listening and being able to, I, I, I've gone on long enough about this, but do you see what I'm saying? And really be able to, to, to not go in there with blind spots as, as Gabrielle said to Burnham. When, Michael came out like she kind of turned around and, and realized that what she was doing was causing more division. And she said, all right, you know, this, I, I withdraw. Um, I want to nurture and build upon what has been established here. And so huh, <laughs> it's, it's something that is universal right now, this division and polarization and it doesn't need to be like we don't need to react emotionally to everything which we should react with having emotion um but there's like an emotional intelligence to learning how to just sit, sit back and listen and drop our shields right yes. and and really hear what people are saying to us um it for me, I understand that a lot of people are angry right now. And I think a lot of people have the right to have anger. Um, sure. And, and I, I want to do the work to, to help facilitate. Um, I don't want to make angry people have to speak up for themselves right now. I want to do what, what I can um, to, to help, help get there, to have those conversations. Yeah. But that is something that, that everyone has to do. And so I think working to set up safe spaces where we where we invite those conversations and try to foster those conversations whether publicly whether privately that's an individual choice um is is kind of where we're at and, and where this episode i think really leads us and that makes me wonder what's going to happen the rest of the season um i also but, think i'm gonna yeah i love that heather thank you that was so beautiful oh that's, thank you yes yes all that yes thank you i also want yeah. to stick up for um uh, Gabriel Burnham as a mom for a second um, because I know that it's like it's perceived sort of that she's being this sort of like you know and, and yeah her like you said earlier that their relationship was wild Heather but I guess that like what I'll, the only thing I'll say is that what she did though was cool insofar as that she did the opposite of being a helicopter parent 
right? Like she, in, in a lot of situations and a lot of characters and a lot of fiction and in life, what happens in situations is that a parent is tempted to move aside the obstacles, right? I interviewed the author Lois Lowry two years ago. I drove up to her house in Bridgeton, Maine, um, who wrote The Giver, um, the children's author Lois Lowry. And we got to talking about Trump, right? We got to talking about Trump and Lois Lowry was like, well, you know, like if kids grow up and they're told that, that they don't have consequences for their actions and that they can be dishonest and all these other things, then you end up with someone like Trump. And that was ringing in my ears, you know, when I was thinking about, and I, you know, I, my daughter was one at the time, she's three now, but it, it's something I think about a lot about how you have to be honest with kids. And so in some ways, you know, like get, uh, um, Gabriel makes that joke where she goes, was this what you were like at 12 years old? Because you know that she wasn't there for that and it wasn't necessarily her fault. She got sucked into a time suit um, with a time crystal, et cetera. And so, you know, Amanda Grayson raised Michael Burnham. Um, but it's like she had this moment as a parent where she was like, I actually have to, Michael Burnham has to stand on her own two feet and she, and I am going to do the opposite of um, what an overbearing helicopter parent would do. So I thought that was great because for me, the powerful moment of the episode is you're waiting for what is the epiphany that the Star Trek character has, right? Like in any great episode. And in this epiphany, it was simply Burnham admitting that she didn't know. You know what I mean? And I thought that was pretty awesome because yeah. that, that to me was the thing that resonated with me. And I was like, yeah, that's what I like about Star Trek is I like it when characters admit, I don't know. And I think that, that speaks to what, yeah. you, what you're saying, Chase, is that like, if you can get to that point where you're in the massive Vulcan science debate room and you can say in front of all those people with so much at stake, I don't know, well, that's when you can make some progress, right? Yeah. And I think that, that that to me was what, that was when the episode really was, was um, that's when it said. It was such a great moment for character development for Michael. Because, I mean, I don't think that Michael would have had the same, I don't think she would have been able to understand what her mom was doing if this had happened in season one, for instance. Like, you know, season one, Michael would maybe have flipped out and gotten argumentative and be like, you're supposed to be here to help me. What are you doing? But she got it. She figured it out. She was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. Uh, and that was really cool. Like, that was a great, that was great writing. Yeah, that, yeah. that truly was. And, you know, as Saru said, we learn our greatest lessons when we pay a heavy price. And I think that's mm -hmm. where society is now. We've learned, we paid the price of not listening for a very long time on, on all sides, on both sides. It doesn't mean we have to come anywhere close to condoning mm -hmm. uh, or uh, agreeing with, but to really understand the heart of why people do what they do. The answer is almost, almost I'm sorry, why people have to go back to really understand the heart of why most always people are, have implicit bias, have hate, have exclusion, have things that Roddenberry worked against, um, withhold data, withhold information, withhold science as they were doing on Navarre. It's almost always fear. And I think that the antidote to fear is listening. Yeah, well, I thought this was a wonderful episode. Um, as you all know, a little bit of fun, we can end on a little bit of fun uh, fan theory trivia, if that's okay with, with all of you, is my biggest question beyond what does this mean for the rest of the season and will we see Michael's cool mom again? And Does she ever take out the sword? Um, my other big question was in this, I'm obsessed with how data and information travels in all science fiction universes. I was obsessed with the idea, as uh, Sarah and Heather know, if they saw my tweet from a few days ago, of how we got the actual recording of Spock talking to Picard. And I don't know, Chase, what do you think? Did Picard have a listening device on him back in the TNG days? Oh, geez. How, what do you think? What do we think? How, did that, how does that recording exist within Star Trek? You know, that never, that never occurred to what, me. This is what I'm here for. This is all I think about. <laughs> that's, so, uh, that's so beautiful. I, and, I have an answer, and my answer is simply that Picard's a robot now. Uh, spoiler alert for the end of Star Trek Picard season one. Oh, no. And so Picard can now make his own holographic mixtapes out of his robot brain. And in the interest of preserving history, I believe he pulled his memories out and put them on a little, you know, floppy drive, a little flash drive, 
uploaded that stuff to some kind of archive and was like, people need to see Spock talking. Okay. Okay. I think you're doing this on purpose because everything that I just said about listening, I totally take it back. I'm not listening to you. Picard <laughs> cannot be a robot. Picard is a robot. Picard no. is a robot. Did you see Star Trek Picard finale? I know, I know, but never mind. <laughs> Picard's a robot. We can't be Picard robot deniers. Uh, no, there's something in my eye, okay? <laughs> Very sophisticated <laughs> robot. Very sophisticated robot. That is true. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe they're all robots now. Who knows? Um, well, that could be. Um, well, I think that on that note, do we? Um, I think that we will um, be seeing everyone again very, very soon. Um, yes. The um, I do want to note that uh, the next few episodes of Disco Nights will have a few interview guests, so please stay tuned for that. Um, our next guest um, on Disco Nights will be Noah Aberbatch Katz. You know him as Rin, who plays the Andorian uh, that was rescued by Book um, in Star Trek Discovery. Um, and then there is another secret guest that I cannot reveal yet coming up this season on Disco Nights who will be a new character introduced in episode eight, Scavengers on Star Trek Discovery. Very exciting. <laughs> Thank you Star all Trek. for joining us. I am super excited about the work that we're doing and what's ahead. Um, anybody have any closing quick thoughts to say on, on, uh, on this week or next? Just, Just that, uh, Tilly, uh, you know, there are people online right now who are arguing that, you know, oh, this, this isn't right. She shouldn't be promoted to acting, you know, first officer and all of that. It drives me crazy. Like, this is something that we've done in Star Trek before and they will continue to do again. This is not the Navy. This is not just about how many little pips you have. If, if, if your superiors believe that you have leadership abilities, they will choose you to be the person who leads, period. What about, and I think Sarah, we can just say, what about Chris Pine? Exactly what happened. <laughs> Always Chris, goes back to Chris Pine. Chris, well, because Chris Pine's Captain Kirk was actually lower in rank than Tilly when he was yep. promoted to acting first officer. Yep. Um, and we saw how that all worked out. He became captain in about a half an hour. Yep. So if you still think that Tilly can't become captain, that's all I got to say. Yes, think about it your biases. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. It's such a Star Trek story. Absolutely. I can't wait to see what she does with it. I think Mary is an incredible actress. I think she's going to really stand up to this. So it's exciting. I think we, we all say yes to Tilly. Yes. Oh, we're all very, yeah, yes to Tilly. <laughs> I want to thank Sarah and Heather again, as usual, for having such um, wonderful voices and providing such valuable insight, um, both for myself and for all the listeners in the Star Trek fandom in general. And thanks to you, Chase, for your brilliant thoughts and wonderful, Thank kind you. things you're doing. Thank you. Thank you all very much, Ryan, Sarah, and Heather. It's uh, always a pleasure. We hope to see you, our audience, next week here on Disco Nights. Thanks so much, everybody. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.